Over the last few days, I've found myself spending a lot of time in front of screens, taking it all in, trying to understand, trying to get the latest, trying to find words where I have none. I've watched videos of horrible violence. I've read news and analysis of the week's tragedies. I've seen hundreds, probably thousands of posts on social media. And I've usually done this while sitting alone, sometimes too late into the night, alone with a screen and the pain of the world. This is where many of us have found ourselves this week alone with a screen or maybe with a loved one, watching horror unfold and witnessing people's horrified online responses. And personally, in my life, in my professional life serving this congregation, this affords me the freedom to go to the governor's mansion to protest, to go to the vigil at J.J. Hill Montessori School, to gather and march together with people who are raging, praying, and speaking their truths. In fact, it's my job. But many of us went to work. We cared for loved ones. We carried out our life's responsibilities, fitting in conversations where we could manage holding this awfulness. And I know that in the predominantly white spaces where I was this week, it was business as usual, with neat and tidy small talk while the world was falling apart. The sun was shining, the lakes were sparkling, while over in Falcon Heights, they were literally washing the blood off the streets. And so in the midst of all that, I knew that I could bring my heart here this morning. I knew that I could come together with you in this community where we name what's real, where we know how to be present with each other, present to the rage, grief, confusion, outrage, heartbreak. I knew I could come here with it all and face the unknown with you because this is a place where we commit and recommit ourselves to staying awake. This is a place where as a people of faith, we know in our bones that we are one human family and that there is no such thing as other people's children. And here in the home of Minnesota Nice, this community is a place where we can be real, where we can be each other's people. So let's be real, I'm just gonna name it here. It's been a gut-wrenching summer. The massacre in Orlando, terror attacks in Iraq, the horrible killing in Bangladesh, isolationism and xenophobia permeating politics at home and worldwide. These are just a few of the pieces that got picked up by our news outlets. And then last Wednesday night, as we now know all too well, Philando Castile was pulled over in Falcon Heights for a broken taillight with his girlfriend, Diamond Reynolds, and her four-year-old daughter in the car. Legally licensed to carry a firearm, Philando Castile was seated with his seatbelt on, reaching for his identification when the officer shot him dead. 
the wrongness here is so egregious. It is so incomprehensible. It is incomprehensible. Yet this is not an isolated incident. This is not a particularly awful one-time mistake. This is a part of a pattern of black and brown lives coming to an end through police shootings. This happens over and over in this country where black people are three times more likely to be killed by police than white people. And then five officers were killed in Dallas. Another act of mass murder and terror through gun violence. Five lives lost, five more families without their loved one coming home that night. And I found myself thinking, is this war? Fear coursed through me, yet I know that this was nothing compared to what people were feeling in Dallas, compared to the fear being felt everywhere by black communities and activists expecting to become targets of blame and more violence. And the emotional impact of this was so powerful. And I found myself thinking, this has got to change things. This has got to change things. Something this horrible, this has to be a catalyzing event that really starts to change it all. This is that historical moment. It has to be. And yet also realizing that I've had this thought before. I've had this thought many times before. Surely after Michael Brown, surely after Tamir Rice, surely after Jamar Clark, surely it will just be too much, too clear. And then we will really begin to address and dismantle the inhumane, broken, racist system of policing and criminal justice in this country. But the truth is this is nothing new. This is taking place in a country founded on the notion that some lives have more value than other lives. An old, old narrative. It's in our DNA. This is a miseducation that we all still receive on some level. And what's new is the way that we're taking it all in. Facebook posts, streaming videos, social media, screens everywhere. Could there be anything more anathema to what we stand for as people of faith than this? And yet this system is so old, it's so entrenched, and those with greater power and privilege, the white folks, not only benefit from it, but are socialized to be utterly blind to anything but its most abject manifestations. How do we dig up roots this deep? So this may be the part where the despair kicks in for you, the cynicism, the overwhelm, the too muchness. I know I brought my too muchness here this morning. It's just too much. And yet, if you've got enough relative privilege to have the luxury of doing so, you might just numb out through your method of choice, overwork, Netflix, food, you name it, and just tune it out. And we know that stuffing it down and tuning out the pain and frankly the evil, this corrodes our souls. This hurts us all. This is its own violence. 
We know as Unitarian Universalists that we are inextricably bound to each other. We are one human family. We're connected to the big everything. Our separateness is nothing but an illusion. We are part of this. And we know that as a community, this church is committed to affirming and protecting the light in each human heart and listening to where love is calling us next. Where is love calling us? Where do we go from here? So we're gathered as a whole body of people this morning with a shared set of religious commitments, but also as a body of people of different identities, different histories, different lived experiences. And so in some ways, where we go from here depends on where we are coming from. So where do white folks go from here? Beloved white friends, this is the time for us to be doing more listening and less talking. We can take up a lot of space and not even know it, but listening to and believing the lived experiences of black people is where we need to be right now. Seeking out African-American voices in the discussion, in the media, in our neighborhood, in our workplace, and bearing witness with open hearts. More than ever, this is the time for us to do our own work, bringing our own questions and tears to each other so that we can honor our black siblings by not asking them to take care of fixing us or explaining to us or being brave for us when they need to tend to their own aching hearts and the reverberations of ancient traumas. Also, my white folks, my white friends, we cannot let ourselves lose sight of the fact that public tolerance of police killings is a white problem. It is our collective problem to work on together. And this is not because as individual people, we are bad people. And if you are feeling that guilt crop up right now, or if you find yourself checking out, just say hello to that guilt or those familiar feelings, and you can just ask it to take a seat until the end of the service. <laughs> It'll be there. Our continued tolerance of police killings is completely bound up with how whiteness functions within the brokenness of racism that we've all inherited. And it wants to render black bodies invisible. So white people, we are uniquely positioned to bring about this shift. And I know it is so hard and awkward, but we are called to have those damn hard conversations that we don't feel quite prepared for and may never feel prepared for, but to speak from our heart to our people, 
to use our influence to contact lawmakers, to use our white bodies as tools of de-escalation and demonstrations. And we don't have to do this alone. And I know that it is so hard, but we have each other. It is so hard, but it is not nearly as hard as never hearing your son call your name again, because he has committed the crime of driving while black. And we will be there with you. The people of this congregation, we are there with you. We are in it with you. We will continue here at First Universalist to offer classes, circles, opportunities to practice, to grow in this direction here at church. Please, I hope that you are checking out our Facebook page. I hope you're connected to the weekly liberal that comes in the email so that when something comes up and we need to show up that you are hooked in, we don't have to do this alone. And people of color, I can only begin to imagine what you are feeling right now. I can't imagine what you are feeling right now. And I don't think you need my advice right now. You have heard advice for too long from white people about how to feel and how to respond when violence is perpetrated on you and your community. So I don't have any words of advice for you today, just words of love. I see you and I am so glad that you are in this church. This church community sees you and we love you and we are right here with you. We will all continue to be right here, to be together, to remember the fundamental love that surrounds us, that calls us to our best self, that love that will not let us go, whatever name you call it, or if no words ever felt right, you're with your people here too. So that even in times of trauma and fear and devastation, we know that there is a greater love always calling us to imagine and build together the world where we can all be free. And trusting this is what hope looks like. Hope is not a naive assertion that everything's going to be okay. Rebecca Solnit describes it brilliantly in her book, Hope in the Dark, when she writes, Hope is not like a lottery ticket you can just sit on the sofa and clutch, feeling lucky. Hope is an axe that you break down doors with in an emergency. Hope just means that another world might be possible and it's not promised and it's not guaranteed. But to hope is to give yourself to the future. And that commitment to the future makes the present inhabitable. So here we are, we're at the precipice. We don't know what's coming next. And just look around you and we are all here together. We never know what's coming next. We are in the middle of a story and we are shaping that story. This is a process that is rarely, probably never remembered accurately by history. It's often supplanted by a hero story, by some easy narrative. 
But transformation is actually something that begins in the margins, in the shadows, and then it moves towards the center. And the path is complex. It's hard to predict, and it involves a lot, a lot of people power, a lot of people power in showing up, and we have got to get uncomfortable. But when we take the long view, we remember that ideas that were once considered extreme or impossible eventually become what we've always believed, how it's always been. And this will happen again. And I am seeing hope in the margins of this tragedy. I'm seeing hope in the movement for black lives and its impact. I saw hope at the governor's mansion and the donations of fresh fruit and water and warm meals to the protesters. I saw hope when a former coworker, when our babysitter showed up at the rally and sought me out because they saw on Facebook that I would be there. And I felt hope because I knew that you would be there. And I saw so many of you, and I saw you posted on Facebook, and I saw the emails that you wrote me, and it felt so good to be there, either to see you or just to know you're there with me in spirit, or even if you were out of town or you were caretaking a sick loved one, that your heart was with us. I saw hope in having a play date with white friends in southwest Minneapolis and having a real substantive conversation about race and police brutality with my peers. I saw hope in the indefatigable organizers, including our own Lena Gardner, showing up again and again. holding kindness and holding rage and holding imagination and holding deep courage and holding 10,000 logistical details all at the same time, organizing friends and total strangers and trusting them with a kind of trust that can only be called faith. And the child said, it's okay, mama, it's okay. I'm right here with you. In the midst of a horror scene that will shape the rest of her life, a child speaks words that have been spoken to her before. Someone taught her this, words of love inscribed on her heart by caring people in her life. I'm right here with you. So let us take these words that were spoken in terror and use them to upend the racist system that created the terror, and I am here with you. Let us inscribe these words on our hearts. Let them be our prayer and our guide. I am here with you. May these words undergird every action we take, every kindness, every hard conversation, every time our deepest commitments, damn it, ask us to step into our fear, into the unknown, into something we've never done or someone we have never really been before. I am here with you. Let this be our spiritual practice to find ways to be right here for each other, no matter what is going on in your life, no matter what the situation, we are called above all else to be here for each other. That is the embodiment of the core of our faith. 
May we choose to give ourselves to the future so that that commitment might make the present inhabitable. May we even dare to find joy in it, which would be the ultimate rebellion. <laughs> I am with you. You are my people. We are each other's people. Love will prevail. May it be so and amen.